Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Hello and welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Well, you probably think that you've tuned in to the movie marquee, but we've actually made a change and we are now called Hooked on Movies. With me as always is Ken. The power of Christ compels you. And Ted. What an excellent day for an exorcism. And I'm Eric. Keep away, the sow is mine. And of course, if you know those movie lines, you know what movie we are referencing. Of course, this is the 1973 release, The Exorcist. But we are doing the extended director's cut, which came out in 2000. has a few additional scenes in it that make a lot more sense for this movie. Ted, give us the details of The Exorcist, would you? Yes, The Exorcist, the extended version, was directed by William Friedkin. And it's a screenplay by William Peter Blatty. It's based off of the novel, The Exorcist, by William Peter Blatty. It comes in with a running time of an original cut of 122 minutes from 1973, and the extended version is 132 minutes from the year 2000. It had a release date originally of December 26, 1973, the day after (laughs) Christmas. Merry Merry Mm. Christmas, here's The Exorcist. That's right. It had a budget of $12 million, and it had a box office gross of $441.3 million, which I think Ken has found, based off of uh, adjusted for inflation, one of the most, one of still one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Am I correct? Maybe even the greatest, rated R-wise, of all time. It, it's debatable, because... People figure out inflation in their own weird ways. I did read, though, that this is Warner Brothers' highest grossing film of all time. That's pretty the, impressive. Considering the the long lineage of Warner Brothers. Bugs Bunny, yeah. 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 This is based off of the book, The Exorcist. William Peter Blatty actually based this off of a true story. The true story involved an exorcism that was performed partially in Maryland, but then the majority of it also then took place and concluded in St. Louis. The true story was a boy who was possessed, and his name has never been revealed throughout the years, which is an amazing feat in of itself in this day and age. He goes by Roland Doe. um, And I have heard rumors that the boy is still alive. Yes, he is. In some of the Um, many podcasts I listen to, they say he is still alive. Yep, he is still alive in the house that he that the family lived in in St. Louis is still around as well. People can stay in it now and stuff like that, and they can do ghost uh, hunts and stuff in there. It was a true story. My an interesting side note: my dad, when he was ten, he had a major accident and he ended up in the hospital in St. Louis. And ironically enough, when he was at a point where he was recovered enough, 
A couple of the nurses took him around and were wheeling him around in his wheelchair. They took him by the room where Roland Doe stayed in the hospital. This is where the exorcisms took place. That's pretty neat. A little something a little different. Yeah, it's definitely a true story. They have documentaries on it. You could just go ahead and pull up The Real Exorcist. I believe it came out maybe during the time that this was re-released. It's interesting. One of the crazy things is William Peter Blatty based the novel off of a memoir that was found. Because what was happening was William Peter Blatty had written other things. And he was looking for his next book. And there had been an article that he remembered from when this all was taking place. And it just so happens that an office or something of one of the priests who conducted the actual exorcism was being renovated and they found his memoir. And I guess you can find his memoir places, but the main exorcist that did the actual exorcism, he's never spoke publicly about it. They just had his memoir. It's pretty interesting stuff if you really get down deep into it. One of the podcasts I listened to that after this uh, exorcism took place, that the furniture in the room was sold off and people didn't realize where the furniture had come from. It went to like some, <laughs> some warehouse and it was sold as rem- remnant furniture and people were reporting that this furniture was doing some pretty weird stuff in the house. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Could be uh, uh, folklore or it could be fiction, who knows, but it's still kind of cool. All of this really, <laughs> at the end of the day, boils down to how much you believe. That's true. The movie The Exorcist is has a cast starring Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil, Jason Miller as Father Damien Karras, Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil, Max von Sydow as Father Lancaster Marin, Lee J. Cobb as Lieutenant William Kinderman, Kitty Wynn as Sharon Spencer, Jack McGowan as Burke Dennings, Father William O'Malley as Father Joseph Dyer, and Father Thomas Birmingham as Thomas Tom the president of Georgetown University. What uh, do the critics think of this? Rotten Tomatoes has this with a critic score of 84%, which makes it a certified fresh. And it has an audience score of 87%, which when I saw that, I was actually expecting it to be much higher on both counts. Yeah, I would think so too. That's surprising. We've reviewed movies in the past where we were in the 90s. I would have thought for sure this was going to be in a 90s type of a thing. I saw an interview with Quentin Tarantino. He said this is the best horror movie that's ever been made. But as far as the critics go, the critics, I have I have two positive and two negative critics here. The negative critics, we have uh, Vincent Canby from the New York Times. He said, The Exorcist is not an unintelligently put-together film, which makes one all the more impatient with it. I don't know what he was talking about there. And Tony Mastriani of Variety said, The Exorcist is a movie to make your hair stand on end and turn your stomach. Unfortunately, it may affect your stomach more than it does your hair. For many, The Exorcist may well be the movie to be nauseous by. That's a positive review. Yeah. It's something. I think they would consider that positive. Uh, Probably. Uh, Bill Mm. Freakin probably would. Mm -hmm. But the positive critics, we have Michael Wilmington from the Chicago Tribune. He wrote, The Exorcist, like most memorable Hollywood movies, gains its power from the way it mixes opposites. New style realism and sexual radicalism 
old-style horror and religion. And then, of course, Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times. If movies are, among other things, opportunities for escapism, then The Exorcist is one of the most powerful movies ever made. Very good. Uh, The low ratings is probably because of just how many years and how many recycled versions of The Exorcist there's been. And I think it grabs people like it probably did in 1973. You know, you have somebody who reviews it now. I went to go see this in the theaters in 2000, and people were laughing. There wasn't people that were scared. Really? There wasn't people that you, were passing uh, out. You've mentioned this before, but, you know, I heard something about... Because I wanted to check that particular thing out that you said about the laughing. And I've read a thing from a psychologist that says... When people are laughing at something that's supposed to be scary, it's because their mind doesn't really know how to process what they're actually seeing. So it, then it comes out as a laugh. Freakin' actually I, says that too in, in an interview with Freakin'. He's like, well, I don't care if they laugh. It's an emotional response to the movie because right. they don't know what they're, how to respond to it. So yeah. he likes that idea, actually. So freaking out. Yeah, or freak. Exactly. <laughs> I've been in the movie theaters with other people before and had that same experience where people were chuckling and they were laughing with. I've realized now is because they didn't know how to process. One of the big times that that happened was during Saw, the original. People like started to laugh because they didn't understand. Their minds were broke, essentially. I, honestly, I think The Exorcist would be a great movie to see on the big screen. I'm kind of jealous that you got to see it in 2000. That that would have been really cool. They usually do anniversary stuff. Fathom Events usually does a lot of that. Well, 50 years well, next year, right? 50 yeah, years so, next yeah. year, yeah. Well, we've been talking about The Exorcist. Ken, tell us a little bit about the movie. What's the plot of this one? We have Father Marin. He participates in an archaeological dig in Iraq, which unearths a medallion of St. Joseph and an artifact representing Pazuzu an agent demon which we are led to believe has dealt with Father Marin before. While in Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil works on a film directed by her friend Burke Dennings. Chris lives in a rented house with servants and her daughter Reagan. Father Damien Karras is a Georgetown priest, psychiatrist, who we see is visiting his mother in New York. He has confided to his colleague that he is unfit for the role as counselor to other priests, citing a crisis of faith. Chris hears noise in the attic, and Reagan tells her of an imaginary friend named Captain Howdy, which tells her things from a Ouija board. At a party hosted by Chris, Father Dreyer tells Chris of Father Karras' role as a counselor. He also mentions that Karras' mother has died recently. Reagan appears, looks at one of the guests, who happens to be an astronaut, and says, You're gonna die up there. And then she urinates on the carpet. After Chris puts Reagan to bed and exits her room, Reagan's bed begins to shake violently. Dreyer consoles Karis, and Karis expresses guilt at not being there for his mother before she died. We see Reagan become violent. She is subject to several medical tests, which fail to find anything physically wrong with her. One night, Chris finds the house empty, except for a sleeping Reagan. Dennings is found dead at the foot of an outdoor staircase beneath Reagan's window. Homicide detective William Kinderman questions Karis confiding that Denning's body was found with his head turned backwards. Reagan's condition worsens, and her body becomes covered with sores. A doctor mentions exorcism as a remote option, suggesting a possible psychological benefit. Kinderman visits Chris, explaining that the only possible explanation for Denning's death is that he was pushed from Reagan's window. 
After Kendall Ben leaves, the possessed Regan stabs her genitals with a crucifix. To Chris's horror, the possessed Regan turns her head backwards and speaks in Denning's voice. The possessed Reagan is confined to her bedroom. Chris seeks out Karis, who visits Reagan. Over two meetings, the possessed Reagan claims to be the devil himself, projectile vomits into Karis's face, speaks in tongues, tells Karis that his mother is also in her. Your mother's in here with this cast. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. And then she reacts violently when tap water is sprinkled on her. The demon says it will remain in Reagan until she is dead. Desperate, Chris confides that a possessed Reagan killed Dennings. At night, Reagan's nanny calls Karis to the house. They witness the words, Help me! materialized on Reagan's belly. Karis concludes that an exorcism is warranted. His superior grants permission on the condition that an experienced priest leads the ritual while Karis assists. Father Marin, having performed an exorcism before, is summoned. Marin arrives at the house. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Warning Karis that the demon uses psychological attacks. As the priests read from the Roman ritual, the demon curses them. It focuses on Karis, verbally attacking his loss of faith and guilt over the circumstances of his mother's death. The priests rest momentarily. Karis enters the bedroom where the demon appears as his mother. Showing weakness, Karis exclaims that the demon is not his mother. The power of Christ compounds you! Marin excuses Karis and continues the exorcism by himself. Karis assures Chris that Reagan will not die and re-enters the room, finding Marin dead. Karis beats the possessed Reagan and demands that the demon take him instead. The demon rips a medallion of St. Joseph from Karis's neck and begins to possess him, freeing Reagan. Karis hurls himself out the window, tumbling down the staircase outside. Chris and Kinderman enter the room. Chris embraces the healed Reagan, and Kinderman surveys the violence and confusion. Outside, Dreyer administers the last rites as Karis dies. The McNeils prepare to leave, and Father Dreyer says goodbye. Despite having no memory of her ordeal, Reagan is moved by the sight of Dreyer's clerical collar to kiss him on the cheek. As the McNeils leave, Chris gives Karis medallion to Dreyer. Dreyer places it back in her hand and suggests that she keeps it. After she and Reagan drives away, Dreyer pauses at the top of the stone steps before walking away, coming across Kinderman. Kinderman and Dreyer begin to develop a friendship. The end. Wow, such language, Ken. Pretty harsh. What do you mean? I was possessed. Uh, Of course you were. That makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense. And Ted, when was the first time you saw this movie? Here again, I've been trying to think about when the first time I saw this movie and it's always kind of been there. My dad was a huge horror movie fan. I know I didn't see it in this version as far as the not for TV version. It would have had to have been high school. It's always kind of one of those movies that's been there and it was always like talked about maybe like seventh or eighth grade. But here again, it's real tough to pin down because like I said, my dad loved horror movies. That makes sense. And I mean, we'll continue the theme here. Can you saw it on cable TV? Yes, I believe I did. So <laughs> yeah. I saw this at a friend's house initially in grade school. I don't think it would have been on public TV at that particular point, but I probably no. was 9 or 10, and we're over his house during the Halloween season. What I remember most about this is seeing the demon's face, and that scared the crap out of me. Pazuzu. Yeah, Pazuzu. That itself was the most scariest thing because I didn't expect it. And he he has a very small TV. We're in his room watching it, and I think it's like on one of those 18-inch, 22-inch TVs. Oh, they're like 13 or 19-inch of the standards. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're really small at the time. Sure. So all I see is this like white face come out of nowhere, and I'm just and just freaked me out. So I didn't want to touch this movie again for a very long time. I don't remember seeing this movie exactly, but I do remember when I saw it that it literally scared the hell out of me. It freaked me out. It probably had to be, I'm thinking junior high, probably a VHS copy somewhere, but it freaked me out. Other times I saw it years and years later, you know, I'm picking out scenes that just freaked me out. And then you see the director's cut, you know, with a few additional scenes, it kind of freaks you out even more, but... It was a lot of fun to sit back and view this one again. I will admit that it didn't really scare me that much when I went to see it in the theater in 2000. I actually, before 2000, went and saw The Exorcist 3 when it came out as well. Not scary at all, but a decent flick to watch. So if you ever want to get a chance, skip over Exorcist 2 and go straight to 3. It just doesn't have the same effect that it did probably originally when it first came out. People were losing their minds about this movie. They were passing out, throwing up in the theater. It was just crazy. I heard a miscarriage was uh, confirmed, too. The only thing that anybody got sick from was probably the popcorn uh, when they went to go see this movie in 2000. (laughs) Was it a, a packed house? It was a packed house. It probably was sold out. It, you know, there was a lot of people anxious to see this movie. In Just out of curiosity, was it people of your age group or was it like teenagers, younger people? Actually, I was 28 years old when it came out the second time. And I would say it was a, a good mixture of people. I think what it was was disappointing was the additional scenes didn't add any more scare to the movie the only thing that really was the spider walk even then people were kind of laughing at that even though it yeah. had never been seen right. before i mean in 73 that would freak you out but i could see in 2000 how that's a little hokey there's a little desensitization that had occurred as far as horror movies go too this is a unicorn of a movie as far as really freaking people out. You had a series of three movies that I'll talk about later that caused an entire decade's worth of what's been come to known as the Satanic Panic. As Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Omen caused an entire panic that ran through America like nothing else. I remember being scared by it, but as I grew up, like Ken, you were saying, this kind of the mixed result. It's never seemed funny to me. What it did is it actually made me look and do further research and think further watching it this time around by myself in the dark at about 11 11 30 at night i wouldn't say i was scared but i did feel a little uneasy like if i watch this straight through and i go to bed i'm going to have some real interesting dreams that's for sure one of the coolest things that i remember seeing it it was one of the first times i had visited my wife up here before we were married and her dad had a bose surround sound system in his living room and everybody was gone so we turned on the exorcist <laughs> there was one part where the the furniture starts to move and it came through the behind us when we were sitting on the couch so the sound came out of the back speakers and it scared the crap out of my wife it was pretty funny but yeah, no, I was like freaking out looking around too. So I understand what you're saying there, Ken, about watching it late at night. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been down that road where I've watched it late at night as well. And I was thinking about your, your movie experience. I I will bet you that most of the people in that theater probably have already seen the movie once or twice. Mm-hmm. You know what's coming. Right. You're just seeing it on the big screen and you're like, well, special effects aren't that good. But actually, they are. But we'll talk yeah. about that later. 
Let's do a dive right into this movie here. I'm going to kick us off talking about the character Father uh, Lancaster Marin, played by the great Max von Sydow, who we lost in 2020. The character of uh, Father Marin is an extremely interesting character based on this movie. The character is loosely based on a British archaeologist by the name of Gerald Lancaster Harding who uh, at the time is responsible for recovering many of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were recovered in 1948, as many of those were going to be going into the private hands and they would never be seen again. He was responsible uh, for actually recovering a lot of those and making them uh, uh, public use, public view, so we could investigate those, which is kind of an interesting backstory. Max von Sydow, I mean, he's he's the kind of actor that you look at and you're like, man, this guy looks like he's been 70 years old from the date of birth. You know, he's just one of those guys that really comes across as old. But in this movie, in 1973, he's the age of 44 years old. And That's you would look at this movie, it is mind-blowing. I would have never guessed that he was 44 I'm 48. There's no way you could probably put that much makeup on me as well as they did and make it look like I'm in my 70s or early 80s on the age of uh, retirement. I mean, it was an incredible job and such a great actor that he is. He really played that part well as a aging paleontologist and priest. I mean, he's just incredible uh, as, as an actor in this movie. The movie starts off in Iraq, in the desert, in Mosul. Father Marin is a is a paleontologist. He is a Jesuit priest, and it's kind of the basis of how the movie starts off. The character itself, he is very devout in his faith. In the movie itself, we've talked about it earlier that the demon Pazuzu is not mentioned in the original theatrical release. It is mentioned in the extended, and I believe it's mentioned in either the second or third one. So you kind of get a little backstory on that. And then there's been remakes after this. We find out that uh, the character uh, Father Marin is actually, you know, this is the second time he has fought this demon. He first fought him in uh, Africa in World War II. So he knows that he is going to be summoned, if you will, to to fight this demon. He just doesn't know where, but he knows it's going to happen. He's performed exorcisms in the past, obviously. We know that. We know he has a heart condition, which obviously plays in more towards the later part of the movie where he's taking nitroglycerin pills, which I know at the time was very common. Uh, People had heart conditions to take nitroglycerin pills to open up their capillaries in their blood, in their veins, so they, they don't have a heart attack. I think I knew someone years ago that had to do that, but I don't think they do that anymore, but I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, you know, one of the interesting things I, I found out about this role is, oh, I, I don't even want to say it because it would have been a, just an, an entirely different movie, but can you picture Marlon Brando in the role of uh, no. Father Marin? No, 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 it would not be, nine, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, he would have just been on a, an entire role there with The Godfather and yeah. this, but uh, luckily the, the director's like, you know what, we're not going to go that route because yeah. it would be a complete Brando movie. It would be focused on Marlon Brando and not the movie. Yeah, but um, the demon could have been a contender. It yeah. could have been a contender. It's it right, right? Yeah. Marlon Brando, the demon, that might have been a little bit better, right? It's... Almost unthinkable at this point. It is unthinkable. Maybe you would offer him uh, an offer that he couldn't refuse, the demon. You know, know, he would have been a role, the Godfathers, the Exorcist. 
probably would have been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. For just showing up. For just showing up. That's right. Well, the studio wanted him. This could have been an entirely different movie with some of the people that they wanted, the studio wanted in some of these roles and some of the people that auditioned. I liked Max von Sydow. And you were right, Eric. I would have never have guessed he was 44 years old here. Crazy. This movie clouded my vision for actually how old Max von Sydow was. Figured he was in his 70s back in the 70s. And you know what? Ironically enough, too, he looked old in Three Days of the Condor, which came out in 75. Yeah. I know, (laughs) right? So it looked great in Flash really... Gordon. So when he in Flash oh yeah, Gordon, yeah, yeah like, great true. look for him. Whoa, Absolutely. what happened to you? You got some aged <laughs> creamer or something? I don't. It's one of those weird things. And we were talking about Marlon Brando. Father Marin needed somebody with a more fine-tuned, higher sensibility of acting. One of my favorite things that Max von Sydow's ever been in is Igmar Bergman's movie The Seventh Seal. Which, if you're a cinephile and you've not seen The Seventh Seal, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Incredible um, movie. And he is perfect in it. And of course, he was one of Igmar Bergman's main actors that were in a, a lot of his movies. And he brings that level of expertise to the role of Father Marin that is just spot on. And it brings a seriousness. Marlon Brando in the 70s, he's not Marlon Brando from A Streetcar Named Desire anymore. He's now more of a caricature of himself rather than the Marlon Brando. It wouldn't have been a good fit. No. I mean, the makeup is great and it ages him, but his mannerisms are that of an older gentleman. Right. Yeah. He portrays somebody who has a heart condition that's older. He does it extremely well. And the makeup along with that makes you buy into it so well i mean by the time you you see him in star wars the force awakens he basically looks like that it's it's amazing how the the makeup job just really nailed it because he that's how he looks basically 40 years later is he looks exactly like that give him credit for that because when makeup artists usually do old people they miss the boat completely most of the times but not here they nailed it and not just here but they'll nail it with reagan later on I don't know if they won an Academy Award for this, but if they didn't, that's crazy. I agree 100%. The scene was in Iraq, but this was an actual dig. They had to get permission to be there, and America didn't have relationships with Iraq at the time, so it had to be an all-English crew, all from England. That was interesting. And in order for them to do it, they had to teach the people in Iraq how to do movies, how to make film blood they filmed everything else and i think at the end they actually end up filming uh the iraq parts eric you had mentioned that father marin and pazuzu had done battle before uh, yes spiritual spiritual battle and this is something that i've learned through my years that i've been interested in exorcisms and things like that malachi martin who was an ex uh jesuit priest wrote a brilliant novel called hostage of the devil And he talks about some of the exorcisms that he was a part of. And he says that the exorcism, quote-unquote, community that these priests live a part of, this is super common that you will do battle with the same demon time and time again. The way he described it in his book is like these demons are seeking 
spiritual battle with that particular person to do battle with them. It's one of those weird things. I highly recommend the book, Hostage to the Devil. By the way, I was reading this while we were talking. I want to go back to when I first saw this. I was reading that CBS actually was broadcasting this in the 80s, but it was a edited version done by Freakin. 43 minutes long. That's yeah. a fine line that they have to cut. Oh, there. boy. So, like, the Virgin Mary was crying blood instead of having all that. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah all that other stuff. Never showed the rest of it. This is probably one of the top-tier movies that should just never be yeah. edited for television viewing because it completely takes away from the whole movie. It really 100% does. 100% agree. 100%. It's horrible. Now, that is something that I would probably laugh while watching. Yes. Freakin' actually, he revoiced the demon oh, and no. had to replace the wording because oh. he had a fallout with the actress that actually oh. really said that. Oh, no. So just oh, really yes. bad overdubbing oh, no. of... Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I want to see this now. i got to find a copy. i got to find some, it somewhere. That's some Mystery Science Theater 3000 yes. sort of crap. Oh, that's there. awesome. That's that horrible. is awesome. Mm. Very cool. Well, thank you for giving me a good laugh for today. In a very scary horror movie, we all get a good laugh out of a, an edited copy that our good friends at CBS viewed years ago. Well, let's move on to character Chris McNeil, played by uh, Ellen Burstyn, the relationship between her and her daughter, Reagan McNeil. Ellen Burstyn, great actress that she is. I believe this is her second real big role. I know she was nominated for an Academy Award for uh, Best Supporting Actress, I believe. Well, I know she was in the last picture show before this. Last picture show in, in 71. That was it. Thank you. And then this one, she was nominated for Best Actress. Didn't win. I don't know if she deserved to be nominated for Best Actress actress she was good but i don't think she was all right yeah i don't think she was best actress material what do you think ted it's an interesting choice by the academy um were they forced into it by the hype that came out of this movie well it was nominated for 10 academy awards it won two so obviously it was on a a wave of nominations so you're right they could have just kind of went with the flow now she would have won now we can sit back and go, ah, I, you know. Yeah. I, I have no idea who else was nominated. Well, Glendon Jackson um, won for a, a Touch of Class, Marsha Mason for Cinderella Liberty, Barbara Streisand for The Way We Were, and oh. Joanne Woodward for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. I don't know any of these movies you except mean for... Joanne Woodward wasn't nominated for being Ronald Reagan's first wife? Weird tangent to go on, Ted. Yeah, we're sorry, weird. Sorry, yeah, good tangent. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, goodbye, All Mr. Right. Chips. So really but, not, uh, not okay. well-known movies to my knowledge, except for the Barbara Streisand, which we reviewed before, and you way we were, check, man. That, Absolutely. check that out back in the movie Check marquee. it off the list. It's, we got it. We I, have yeah, it on the I movie marquee. Her performance was really good there. It was. In the way we were. I Yes. I haven't seen the other movies, so I can't really comment. Right. Nor have I. I was, but um, but it, it's interesting because of the fact that a horror movie did not get this type of an attention when it came to the Academy Awards. No. So I don't think there was pressure here to nominate her. Her performance was okay. I don't think the movie circled around her enough to require a performance mm. of an Oscar-worthy nomination. Well, horror movies have always been looked as the bastard stepchild of the academy anyway 
there was a period from Rosemary's Baby until like the end of the 70s where there were higher class horror movies before then the slashers took over. And I know some people don't consider Silence of the Lambs a horror movie, but that was really the one that broke through the glass ceiling. It's interesting that The Exorcist rose to the height of actually being nominated because (laughs) horror movies were not looked at as anything like that from the Academy as being worthy. Kind of like comedy. I mean, it's... Yeah. So we're all in agreement that she probably should not have been nominated for a Best Actress, but she was still good in the movie. I mean, her role as the mother of uh, Little Reagan, I thought she did a really good job in it. I definitely believe she was a loving mother. She cared for her daughter extremely much. Flick two conflicts in this movie with her. One, the battles between her husband, her she's separated from, and the, the movie that she was filming. A movie in a movie, if you will. So that was taking a lot of her time away from Reagan. But when she was with Reagan, that was her number one priority. Definitely a loving mother. We can all agree on that. They lived in Los Angeles. They were renting a home in the Georgetown uh, community of Washington, D.C. while filming the movie. I think she was supposed to be somewhat of a kind of like a mid-role actress. People recognized her here and there. I don't think she was a Streisand-esque type of movie star. I think star. she was. I think she was just because she got invited to the White House. I mean, She did, but that was, was a surprise, yeah. though. She brushed it off like no big deal. But she wasn't really, (laughs) that wasn't her thing, though. She wasn't like Gloria Swanson or something, you know. She didn't really care about that kind of thing. I think this was a lead role for her in this film. I think she was playing a a teacher who was dealing with riots, like the 60 riots in these colleges back in, not even decades. Only probably like five or six years earlier. But she had a relationship with the director. I think she's probably close to a tier A she could afford easily to have a nice place in Georgetown. Uh, and serve, have, servants have servants, and, yeah, so secretary. I, that relationship with uh, the director, Burke Dennings, that's weird. That's a very, very weird. questionable. Mr. Dennings comes off uh, many different ways, but I don't know about him and her hooking up is one of the ways I would go. It's, yeah, I, I don't believe he is, it. Creepy. I know that Reagan mentions that she could that she likes him and stuff like that. Does she? I don't. Is she just I being nice though? She's trying. She's a kid, trying to say if it makes her mom feel better. Reagan might have, as a child, might have been misinterpreting her mom being nice to this creepy old director. Uh, Who's a mean to... drunk? I might add. Yeah, Very he's an drunk. he's an asshole. He, he's mean leave this, drunk. Yeah, he's leave that poor Swiss guy alone. I know, um, right? He's like wanting to pick a fight. I wanted, I wanted that Swiss guy to just n- knock his block off, just to, right? Punch him in the face. He kept calling him a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. So I think that Reagan is misinterpreting that this creep who is auditioning to be the the next Harvey Weinstein um, (laughs) is is just trying to, is creeping on her mom. And her mom is being nice because she has to, because that's what actresses had to do back then was yeah. kind of kiss the ass of the the male director get that lead role and yeah that's right? that's an era gone by but very popular at that time because i kind of on the same vein as ken on this one was i think she's an upper tier actress you think so I you think she's up tier? yeah yeah i would have figured that she probably would have been hanging around the likes of like warren Beatty and paul newman and people like that i don't think she would have had any time for this weird ass 
creepy looking direct. He deserved what happened to him being thrown out the window with his wow. around. Wow, I don't know if I would go that far. Yeah, I mean, he's an asshole. He kept calling the poor guy a Nazi. I mean, I know. Because I don't foresee Burt Dennings being the guy storing Normandy Beach or liberating a concentration camp. He's liberating a bottle of bourbon is what exactly. he's doing. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't foresee him on being on the front lines. More of a John Wayne, I'll fight the war from home type of... The actor who what? played him, uh, Jack Gowan, he passed away a month after this movie was was yeah. released. His last role. Influenza, I think it was. He was older, clearly. Oh. I don't think he was even 55 years old at the time he died. People yeah, he looked, looked a lot older then. Yeah, he did. He looked a lot older, but I think he was, I think is was this 54. Part of the, is this part of the exorcist curse? It could be. Mm, we'll he, find uh, out. He played a drunk very well. It's funny you mention her being a possible A-lister because... Some of the people that were up for her role are top-tier A-lists of the day. So Ellen Burstyn, relatively a newcomer to the scene, obviously, but she came on pretty hot. So she definitely had a little bit of swag to go into this role here, but she was not your big A-lister at the time. Director really fought for her on this one. Studio didn't want her, but he really didn't. He obviously won. But some of the names that have been dropped in this are pretty impressive. Audrey Hepburn. Audrey, mm-hmm. can you imagine Audrey Hepburn mm-hmm. in that one? No, oh. too old by that time. Yes. Now, she declined because she was living in Rome, Italy, and she wanted it f- filmed in Italy. And he's like, no, we're not going to film it in Italy. So she's out. And Bancroft, who would have been a shoe-in for it if she was not pregnant. She wanted it mm-hmm. delayed nine months because she really wanted the role, but they could not push it out nine months. And she that would, would be have a been big one coming, coming off the graduate. Yeah, exactly. Jane Fonda turned it down. I can imagine Jane Fonda in that role. Coming off Clute. Shirley McLean, suggested by Blatty, but she turned it down. Almost um, too big of a personality, almost. Let me correct that. She didn't turn it down. The studio turned it down. Blatty turned it down because she was in a movie earlier in 1971 that was possession-related mm. called Possession of Joel Delaney. Never seen oh, that's it. Right, yeah. But they did not want her for that reason alone. This one is a great one. Considered but didn't audition. Carol Burnett. No. no. Carol Burnett. I'm dead serious. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Geraldine Page turned down the role. Mm. This one I can see. She was considered but didn't audition, but definitely kind of an Ellen Burstyn type of actress. Uh, Lee Remick. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Streisand declined the role. Offered. Didn't read for it, declined it flat out. She chose the way we were. She chose the way we were. Obviously a a good choice on her part. Last name on the list, Miss Raquel Welch. A little little too hot. (laughs) No, too hot maybe. I wouldn't say too old. Little too hot. Too hot. Raquel Welch would have been very Um, interesting in that role. One person's not mentioned there that kept going through my mind, and I think the reason it kept going through my mind was because of her haircut, and that was Mia Farrow. Ellen Burstyn has a very similar haircut what Mia Farrow had in Rosemary's, uh, Baby. Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, that's... I did not hear anything about Mia Farrow yeah, being me auditioned or anything. But I could totally see, out of all of those, Jane Fonda would probably I, have been the I person yeah. that I could Mia, see. Mia Farrow doesn't have any, in my opinion, except for maybe Rosemary's Baby when her baby is... The devil. She doesn't have any maternal Spoiler instincts. Alert. 
Yeah, yeah, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it since 1968. I don't think Mia Farrell would play a decent mother. It would have been an interesting thing, but yeah, Jane Fonda would have been an interesting match there. Right age for the the role, I think, at that particular time. And if it's almost an upgrade as far as the the caliber of actress, too. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, but when was uh, Miss Fonda in uh, Vietnam doing the protesting there? Wasn't was that, that early seventies? Like was it the late sixties? Okay, yeah, sixty-nine or seventy. So yeah. So there might have still but, been some backlash. There's yeah. some backlash. There's oh, backlash yeah. to this day. Yeah, that's a whole podcast about everything that happened on both sides. All right. What do you guys think of of Ellen Burstyn in this role? I know we're we all agree she's not Academy Award nomination role, but what do you think is in the role of uh, of the mom? I think she does really good here. I buy the relationship. I believe her that she's going through one of the most stressful times in her life. Because she thinks that she's going through something stressful with her ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband not calling Reagan on her birthday and things like that. And she thinks that this is the most intense period. I believe her when she's acting desperate. She doesn't know the doctors are just are not helping they're putting her poor daughter through these horrible yeah. medical tests and nothing is coming conclusive. She doesn't know what to do. And I, I believe it. I like it when she is just having these, the meltdown with the doctors at the yeah. table. I mean, very believable. Yeah. I think she's a little bit out of touch with her daughter though, because even for 1972, 73, do you let your daughter play with a Ouija board by herself? She's an atheist. She has no, she no re- religious People who don't her, believe in the Ouija board, yeah, it's a game. This Ouija board comes out of nowhere. These crosses with with Jesus on them come out of nowhere. They they just randomly all show up here. But I think she's a good mother overall. But I I do think she has her career forever. I mean, her career is like the most important thing to her. It's why they're there. It's a role that has the potential to be annoying if it's not played right. She never comes off whiny. If I remember right, wasn't she seriously hurt on the the movie set? Yeah. By that dresser drawers? Yeah. The image that is on screen is the one that, where she gets hurt. She actually broke her coccyx in her lower back, where your back meets your rear end. She broke the bone because freaking... He didn't think that she was getting the right amount of emotion being slapped by Reagan. Freakin' told the people who were controlling the strings that she was attached to to pull her harder. And they pulled her super hard. Then that's the image that's on screen is the one that broke her lower back. And the dresser drawers almost fell on her. Well, then maybe you could have got Jane Fonda. I don't know. Bill Friedkin kind of abused the actors here. This is the first time we're going to talk about Mr. Friedkin's method, I guess. Directorial style. I've not done a deep dive into the the background of how freaking treated uh, Gene Hackman on the scene of the French Connection. I don't think that he did the same those sort of things to. to I Gene don't see Hackman. Gene Hackman taking that kind of shit from. Him, to be I don't. With you, but... I don't either. He took some liberties. We'll put it that way. So Ken, tell us about Father Damien and the struggles that he had in this. Okay, well, Father Damien is a priest who happens to be also a psychiatrist. He talks to the priest and their troubles there at Georgetown. But he's having a little bit of a faith issue. He's having doubts, and these doubts might come from the fact that 
one, he's a mama's boy. You know, his mom lives, I believe, in New York. Yep. And so he's trying to go back and forth between New York and his job at Georgetown. And his mom's got some ailments. We see him wrapping her leg when he comes and visits her. There's a lot of guilt. Guilt can do a lot of things to a person's fate. He also sees bad things happening to people. And, you know, whenever you see bad things happen, death or struggles or anything like that, it can also play into that faith. I like the word Damien, though. We need more Damien's in our movies, right? It's all for you, Damien. Gotta love a Damien prior to the omen. It's almost like a segue right into it. People think it's centered around the girl, but I think it's actually centered around Father Damien here. I, I really think this movie is really about him and his struggles and his fight. But it was going to be offered to Jack Nicholson. But they decided not to go there. They just didn't think that Jack and play priest, no. which I, I, no, I agree. In no universe could Jack Nicholson play a priest. No, nope, sorry. not at all. No, maybe no. the demon, maybe the demon himself, but not exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, yes. If they were if they were casting Pazuzu, yes, Jack that Nicholson. would be Jack Nicholson, right? And then Paul Newman, which I think Paul Newman could have played either father in this movie. I think he was the right age where you could age him right. He would have been believable as a father who was a trouble with his faith. I, I could see that with Paul. He Newman. does play a priest later on, doesn't he? In, in his career, I'm trying to remember a movie where he plays a priest, but. I don't think there is a time where I see it play a priest, no, but maybe there isn't. The movie that I think of when I think he could play a priest is The Verdict, and I know it's a lawyer, but yeah, they're the, the struggles that he has with alcoholism and just coming up, you know, being strong for his client. I could see him being able to pull this off. They were going to give it to a, a guy named Stacy Keach, who has been in American History X and Escape from L.A., but freaking actually spotted Jason Miller in his play the championship season which miller actually you know was in and wrote but he had never any type of movie presence he's never been in any type of movies but he was so impressed by that play that he won the tony award in 73 yeah, he was just so impressed by the play that's yeah. why they uh they got him as far as his performance i think it's a little bit uneven i buy him as the priest and maybe that's why it works a priest should be kind of awkward, especially a priest in, in this situation who has trouble with his faith, who seems to be a chain smoker. His other friend of a priest steals some liquor and gets him drunk when his mother dies. Yeah, because you don't go to God to get your worries gone. You, you go to the bottle. Paul Newman would definitely be a strong upgrade here and would have been able to show a lot of more different emotions. But overall, I think he does a, a decent job here. I think Jason Miller, being a lesser-known actor, you're not distracted. Because if Paul Newman's on the screen, your eyes are going to Paul Newman regardless. It's like Marlon Brando. And Paul Newman is, I mean, he's the it guy. I think that Jason Miller being here, he's more of an everyday kind of looking guy. He brings a more realistic tone to the movie. Because I Mm -hmm. believe him. He's going through a lot. He is a psychologist. It makes sense that he would have a crisis of faith. He's dealing with a lot of heavy stuff all the time. I like it. Paul Newman just was would be a little more too distracting. I don't know if I agree with that, because I think good actors can disappear in roles. If they do it right, True. great actors will make you forget who you're watching on film. And I like, think Paul, like a Tom Hanks, for example? Yeah, like a Tom yeah. Hanks. And I think Paul Newman is right there 
with a Tom Hanks, if not better than Tom Hanks. He's, yeah, he's uh, better than Tom Hanks. But I don't, I'm not trying to knock his performance. I think it's good. Him being a psychiatrist, I think, is a, a nice little add-on because he has to deal with so many other people's problems. Right. And his own, that there's that mixture there that can really cause havoc with your faith. I would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more of that. I don't know much about the actor that was placed by him, so I can't really say if he that would have been a better choice or not. Stacy Keach? Yeah. Sure. Good actor. I just recently known... died, too, I believe. He did a lot of TV stuff, too. Jason Miller here. It was a good choice. Stacy Keach is really good in American History X. It would be like if you said that they were going to cast Powers Booth in this role as well. Because Stacey Keach is a bad guy. He's known for playing bad guys. And we just mentioned his name just a few moments ago. I think Gene Hackman would be good for this part right here. Interesting. And the fact that he just worked with Freakin in The French Connection. He plays a priest in the Poseidon Adventure. That he does. I don't you know, know if we're uh, hold that up for this, whether or not you should be able to play a priest or not. But yeah. maybe not. Right. Maybe not. But <laughs> you adventure. know, an interesting fact about the actor. Do you know his first wife was uh, Linda Gleason, daughter of Jackie Gleason? Yes, I did no. know that. And his know. son is actor Jason Patrick. Right. No. Yeah. Really. Yeah. yeah. Huh. The way that they put her in, like that hospital, psychiatric ward. That's, that's, that's one ward. of the more disturbing things. That's a a publicly funded hospital. They do allude to a little bit that she has dementia, so maybe it is more of a psych type of a floor. You get serious Nurch Ratched vibes yeah, in the whole thing, right? too. That's a, almost a circle of hell that he walks into to see his mom there, and it builds the character. It's one of those take-your-breath-away type moments when you, he's going through there and he sees all these people, and it's like, wow, man. To think to be able to see your mom in that sort of sort of situation, that's got to be hard. Not only in that situation, but that's how it ends. That's the last time we think that he yeah. sees her. And that's how the relationship ends. She doesn't want to go home with him. She is shunning him. Now, that could be because she might have some type of mental condition, or she's just legitimately pissed off at him for kind of leaving her stranded. Everybody's kind of blaming him for where she's at, and now she's doing it. The guilt is just going through the roof now. Well, Ted, let's roll on here. Tell us a little bit about Linda Blair's performance in this movie. Linda Blair's performance here is really amazing, if you think about it. She's 12 years old. This is an awful lot to ask of any actor, let alone a child, to be able to pull off heady material like this about when we talked about the shining we talked about stanley kubrick's um relationship with danny they never told him that it was that they were making a horror movie there was no hiding the fact that this was a horror movie and she's been being asked to do some things that are quite disturbing to say the least i think she really rises to the occasion here and just as another page in the book of William Friedkin, Friedkin torturing the actors. In this section of the movie is when things really start to ramp up with the possession. She sits up and pole goes back down repeatedly on the bed. Well, that was made from like a almost like a steel corset and it wasn't tied just right. 
Franken didn't think he was getting the right amount of despair from Linda Blair. So he had them do it harder. I guess whoever was in charge of tying this corset around her didn't tie it exactly correctly and actually broke her back. And she still suffers from back issues to this day. The film part that he caught of her breaking her back is what is on screen in the final cut of the movie. It's kind of weird. Even the studio had no idea the cultural impact that this was going to have. People actually on the street were thinking that she was possessed, that this was real. She had to have security, didn't she? she, she yeah, had, I heard that. She had security for up to like six, seven months after this, and she refuses to talk about that period. Can you imagine the crackpots that would have been coming and quote-unquote trying to save her? Yeah, and exactly. Things, and things like that. That is truly terrifying, especially for a kid. It's an amazing performance. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but immediately her nomination had the legs cut out from underneath it because the lady who actually does the voice of the demon came out demanding a screen credit, an acting and a screen credit. And so they had to admit that she didn't do the voice of the demon. It's just kind of crap because mm -hmm. she's still doing the acting. Being the fact that she knows she didn't do the voice of the demon, who cares? She does a really good job here. It's kind of unfortunate that it caused the cut out of the legs of her nomination. And I know, Eric, I think you have a, a longer list, but the person that I see repeatedly discuss this is Jamie Lee Curtis. Her mom was Janet Lee, who was the star of the movie Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> this is all ironic in hindsight, because her mom didn't want her to be known for a horror movie role. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so then Jamie Lee Curtis says, hold my beer, and is the star, the superstar of John Carpenter's Halloween. And is known but, as the Scream Queen. And is known as the yeah. first Scream Queen. At the end of the day, it sounds like Jamie Lee Curtis, she, to this day, she is glad that she did not star in The Exorcist. I don't know if somebody was playing a cruel joke on Jamie Lee Curtis, but I guess for her 15th birthday party, they showed The Exorcist. It terrified her. And that's one of those weird stories that comes out that you just can't make up, and Janet Lee not wanting her to be a part of a horror movie, and then... She saved her from back problems the rest of her life. So that's they... true. She Pretty saved much, her from William right. Freakin. I know, Eric, you have a list of some other people who we were discussing and some of them were pretty shocking i know that brooke shields but but she was too pretty yep too brooke pretty. shields i guess was too pretty because she was in a horror movie one of the really weirdest horror movies i can't think of it off the top of my head but it's always a on pretty the list. lady or uh something like that where she plays a killer that wears a like a translucent mask that has makeup on it it's, like, legitimately freaky and terrifying. My favorite one, though, of all the ones that they considered was Denise Nickerson, who played Violet in the uh, Willy Wonka movie. Yeah, that's that's wild. <laughs> She's turning Violet. Violet. When she was working as a model, Kim Basinger auditioned for the role, 
of Reagan McNeil. How about a young Kim Basinger? Crazy? Yes, we got a very young Laura Dern audition for the role. According to an interview, Melody Griffith tested for the part. Eve Plum, we all know Eve Plum from the Brady Bunch. That would have been pretty ironic, huh? Having, I believe she played Jan Brady, correct, if right. I remember right? Right. Yeah. Marcia, Marcia, How about Marcia. that? A very young Shara Stone was considered for the role. That's an interesting group of it's people. An interesting, interesting list. I wonder if this was sort of a thing too that when this came up for the role, they just sent out a mass casting young could young be. women around age twelve. One of the famous things about this movie is the what could have been people, the, yeah. the cast of people that auditioned or were up yeah. for the roles is just incredible. The amount of people names that we know today that back yeah. then were nobodies. You have Anissa Jones, who was known as. Buffy from the Family Affair. Remember Family Affair from Family that, Affair? Yeah. That little TV girl. No. Yeah, they considered her. It's interesting that we think that they did this big casting call, but some of these people they got they said no to themselves because they were too well known. Reagan undergoes these changes. That they start off, I think, relatively subtle, but as things ramp up with the possession, it takes a turn and he Ken, you had mentioned earlier about the the makeup here, the makeup people here during the transformation of Reagan into, I guess, Pazuzu, Mm. for lack of a better term, is really stark. It's really (laughs) horrific in a way, and they really play it up really well. One of the things that the movie does really well is to follow the directions on how somebody goes about obtaining an exorcism. Because you can't just go to your local priest and say, I need an exorcist. There's a lot of procedures that have to be done before that's even considered. And we're talking 1973. That's an era where the Pope at the time had declared that exorcisms were pretty much dead. And that was all the thing of the past, just kind of like what how Father Karras says. No, that's not how this works. And that was the kind of the feeling at the time, and that's a real accurate feeling. But one of the things, if you're going to obtain an exorcism, that you have to go through the psych evaluations and you have to go through the uh, medical testing. And we had also touched on a little bit at the beginning here, people were passing out in the movie theaters and things. This is where I think a lot of that might have happened, because some people are deathly afraid of needles. It is really, really terrifying. This is one of the things that Freakin really does well, is when they're pumping the dye into her brain to to take the CT scan of the brain. Through her artery, through the neck. That is one of the most uncomfortable things in the entire movie, in an entire movie of uncomfortable things. That is freaky. And that is scary. I don't like it. It makes my skin crawl. And I could see people passing out from that. And all of the tests are very claustrophobic. You feel, I I don't know if you guys felt this way, but I felt it. You're almost isolated from everybody else in the movie. And you feel that Reagan's isolation is really helping to exacerbate the situation where she feels alone. And that just allows the demon to take further hold of her. But it seems like nobody can help her. And that's a desperate feeling. And i that's one of the things I really liked about Ellen Burstyn's uh, performance here, was you feel that desperation. And to have to come to Father Karras and say, 
you know, I need an exorcism. His first instinct is medical. He's like, well, I'm a psychologist. Before he mentions that he's a priest, he's a psychologist. And I like how he approaches this. And I don't think Karis really understands what he's going up against until that first time he walks in the door and he sees Reagan slash Pazuzu sitting in the bed. And then, of course, it goes through all of the trope. Well, now what has become tropes of possession movies, but it's actual things that if you do enough research, you find out that these are real things that people are, are quote-unquote, possessed until they, they talk in different tongues. Pazuzu talks in Latin and in French. And the smell, because you've seen Ellen Burson's character, the one part where they have to cover their noses. I guess if you read enough, some exorcists that have spoken out have said that, that it's like a sulfur smell, like a rotten No, it's funny. Eggs. I forgot that she that um, she was speaking French. Kind of leads me to believe that the French are demonic. Yes? French dun, dun, are demonic. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Beautiful. Yeah, the French demonic. The thing that really I think that solidifies things for Father Karras is when he asks Ellen Burson's character, did she know that my mother died? And Ellen Burson's character says, no, she would have had no way to know that. And that's another thing that has to be in spot in a place for something to be visible for an exorcism, telekinesis or telepathy. And Reagan exhibits both. She moves the dresser and the the doors and the chairs, but then she also knows about things that she would have no common knowledge of. Another cool thing that, that the makeup artist did was the help me across her stomach. That was a practical effect that they did because they actually look like scars. I like that he does the fake thing with the holy water, but when it's just the tap water, yes, Pazuzu it writhes and screams, but it has no physical effect. It's not until we actually see the actual holy water hit Regan's skin do we actually see it sliced like being cut. But isn't any water that's being thrown by I, a priest it, holy water? I mean, you know, I was thinking that too, actually. Well, yes. see, yeah, that's a dark area. We'll put it that way. Because, yes, technically, if he's a priest and he says any sort of prayer with the water, it should then become holy water. And this is coming from a that's failed That's one of my Catholic. favorite lines in the movie. Um, where she goes, it burns, it burns. I use that line all burns, the burns, time. Yeah. The demon doesn't probably know any difference. He's thinking that it's... Holy water, I mean... I think the demon knows everything. I think the demon knows exactly what's going on. I think the demon knows there that if he acts that right. way and it's not real, that it's, everybody's going to go away. But ultimately, he wants Father Marin. They play the part that Father Karras records, which is something else that has to be done to get an exorcism. You have to have proof. They play it back. It's Pazuzu speaking backwards, and he mentions Father Marin. But that's also cool. The sound editing in that section, it's not just one voice. If there are layered voices there. It makes it really creepy. If you research the exorcisms and things and people that have talked about it, that's something that I guess happened. I don't think this demon wants Father Marin. I mean, I don't think that's his number one person. I think he wants him there, but I think Father uh, Karras is the number one target because he even tells him that he w wants him to join him. Any sort of priest 
would be a major feather in the cap for yeah. the demon. Um, Plus he knows that the there's soul. probably some but, doubt in this priest because if he knows everything about his mother and knows about even the bum on the street that asked for some loose change or right. whatever, I'm thinking this is all set up to possess him, and we'll talk about that later towards the end. I can definitely see that interpretation of it. I do, however, reading Father Malachi Martin's book, A Hostage of the Devil, and I do believe a lot of what he says, even though he was on Coast to Coast and awful hey, lot. Hey, I uh, like with Coast to Coast. And me too. I was, he, he died awesome recently. Show. Yeah, I, yeah, within the last few years, I think. He mentions that these demons will, especially if they've been beaten before, they will seek out the priest that beat that bested them to do battle again. So, um, in a way, I think Pazuzu is looking to to take Father Marin. However, he needs to get to him. And this is my personal opinion, too, based here off of things that I had researched throughout the years. Father Karras probably never would have been allowed in that room for the actual exorcism because he had exhibited a doubt of faith to another priest and to when we get into the exorcism scene. An exorcism is usually conducted with a priest, an exorcist, and a helper. And then two Priest witnesses. and a rabbi and a preacher and going so through a bar. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> right. And a witness walk into an exorcism. But it's more dramatic if there's just the two of them. And, and it brings in the whole trope of, I need a young priest and an old priest. And I think it builds the tension. We were talking about earlier about all the medical procedures Reagan has to go through. The first procedure that they do, especially, I think, is step-by-step accurate on, I forget the name of that procedure, but... They were Mm -hmm. very adamant about performing it the way that it's supposed to be done. When we were joking about this, of course, that it seems like all doctors are smokers and all priests are drinkers. It doesn't seem like anybody really takes their profession seriously. I know in 1973, we were joking offline that four out of five doctors would recommend this type of cigarette, that everything is four out of five, basically, back in the 70s and 80s. But Linda Blair here is awesome. I mean, she has to go through a lot of physical demands here i mean being thrown up and down that bed like crazy to this day she still has back problems and it's a shame she didn't win for best supporting actress i know tatum o'neill won for paper moon that year and probably deservingly so too that was a good performance as well but the things that this girl had to do just to get through the process i don't care if somebody had to mimic the voice itself she had to show facial frustrations happy girl that slowly and we were talking slowly there it wasn't like all of a sudden she was full scale possessed she went through the phases and she exhibited the phases very well facially it was really well done it's a shame that her career really never took off after this she appeared in a lot of before flicks and basically never was taken seriously as an actress i think she had the chops based on what we see here at a very young age the scene with the psychiatrist when she just basically grabs him by a scrotum and just kind of like, yeah, just like takes him down. Kudos to the makeup people too to, to slowly make that transformation. I mean, I seen what they try to do. They made her try to look like a witch and a zombie and all this other stuff. And they settled on just slight alterations to her face, cuts, bruises. You know, it got more disgusting as time went on, but I never felt like they really truly overdid it. The part where she's being flipped up and down the bed when the doctors come and visit her, 
I thought that was like a dummy doll that's just being thrown back and forth, but that's actually her being yeah, thrown know, back right? and forth. How crazy, crazy that is. How much this director and the stagehands put these poor people through. I think the only reason why he even got the job as director is because nobody wanted to put a 12-year-old through what they put Linda Blair through. Because I know Kubrick was one that was considered. Mike Nichols, who I, I think was the director of The Graduate. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want yeah. to do it because who wants to torture a, a 12-year-old girl and make her say things and do things? I guess her mom was okay with it. I'm sure the paycheck helped out. It's the price you paid to sell your soul to the devil, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. It's amazing, and it is unfortunate that she... Never really got to do anything else except, you know, these theme level horror movies. He got to do oh, Repossessed, yeah, repossessed. Yeah, with Leslie know. Nielsen, oh. The Don't Exorcist, which is more. probably the reason oh, for her career. I, it's a toss-up between The Omen 2 and... I'm going to disagree and, with you on that. I don't, I don't think uh, The Omen 2 is that bad, actually. It, I think it's a very watchable movie. One of the things, we talked about Bill freaking torturing people. <laughs> That's the, the common that theme of this podcast, set, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The set of that room oh, was yeah. refrigerated to actual freezing. It's just weird. When you see their breath. That's real. That's a, I mean, it's, it's, no yeah, CG it's in this freezing movie. in there. Burt Dennings probably did get pneumonia from it. It would actually snow in that set because of the heat from the lighting and everything. That's how cold it was. Just completely off the wall. We didn't even talk yet about where she comes down and tells that astronaut he's going to die at the party and she pees on the floor. Yeah, here again, things that she would have no way to know. Yeah, the whole telekinesis and telepathy and things like that. I'd like to know if the astronaut did die. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Like, they find out, like, a few days later that he, like, right. explodes or something like that. I mean, and, um, then, and then we see the part that it gets to the point where she tosses the director out the window. He like, had it coming. Her mom is driving home. She doesn't notice. That's how intense she is about her daughter. Mm. Right? She doesn't even notice a crime scene <laughs> in front of her home. That's one of those things that doesn't equal, but it's something that I didn't notice really until watching it here for the podcast. Is like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. How would she not know that totally there was a oblivious, crime scene right? in front Just... of her house? Car wreck, no problem. Homicide, no mind. problem. My daughter, that's a big problem. And then you get that detective that shows yeah. up afterwards. Columbo wanna be over there. Awkward, the uh, most awkwardly placed character uh, in the gee, entire Mrs. movie. Gee, Mrs. Neal. I, uh... That... I don't understand the point of him being in the movie. Yeah, I mean, if you take um, him out completely, it doesn't change anything. And he, anything of the, and he of the asks the movie. for her. Yeah, and he asks for her. Says it's oh, her all up with his jokes. It's just I don't get his weird. jokes. If somebody could possibly ever explain to me this joke that he continually tells, once to Father Karras and then to Father Tom at the end of the movie. I mean, is it supposed to be that it's funny that he's seeing Othello with Lucille Ball? You know, because they ask who's in it, and they said, "I'm like, yeah, um, I, I've seen it, seen just, it, just yeah. just to say they've seen it, just so they can't go." But but then they smile afterwards to each other after he says it because it's like a right. joke. And the cop goes, "Oh, so yeah. an- another yeah. wise, another well, it's like if Ted told me he wanted to see a movie with somebody like, that he likes heck? that I completely don't like." I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen it, you know, and just kind of smirk at it. Yeah, but Ted would be like, no, you haven't. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it, I just, I don't get it, and I don't get him. If we'd never even really talked about him, I don't think anybody would have even have missed no. him. And he's a weird character, and he's weirdly placed, because we don't need any more tension. If we were in- instituting, like, a detective story into this, where we have to find out he'll kill Burke Dennings, that would build a tension, but we don't need any more tension here, because we have a demon yeah. upstairs. The so, only way I, mean, I see this working out better is if the detective was actually dating her. So instead of her having a relationship with the director, yeah. she's actually seeing a cop, or she started dating a cop while she's filming here, because he dismisses this all at the right. end like nothing. Wait a second, there's been two murders and, and a heart attack, right? and you're going to dismiss it completely? How do you make that work? How do you tell your it's... police department, hey... I'm I'm just going to drop ups, this because yeah. you know there might have been some de- demon possession happening here. <laughs> it's an it's doesn't pay off. It doesn't fit. I don't care for it. But moving on, well, scenes the, of the first movie thing history. Is him driving up in that um, cab, and you have all this fog in front of the house, and they got that music playing. Is like the most iconic. It is iconic. It's one of my favorite image, movie images of all time. It's been replayed over and over in other movies there. and comedies and things of that yep. nature. Here we start. Father Marin comes in. He talks to Father Damien. They set up their game plan to go take care of uh, Reagan and and this demon. The demon calls right out. Calls out Marin's name right off the bat. While he's coming up to the house. The demon does look a little scared. It looks a little intimidated, like, uh-oh. It's like the dog that chases the car. What happens if the, do- if the dog Here we are, and they're going the to about to do battle. And so they go upstairs, and they, they do the holy water thing, and they're doing the prayer thing. And we haven't even mentioned earlier about the fact that Reagan bits the pea soup at Father Karras. And that was not on purpose of where that landed. That was supposed to land right in the chest earlier, but it hits him in the face and the mouth. And that reaction that he gets is a legitimate reaction. He actually was ticked off that they hit him in the face. And if you listen to the props guy, years later, they said they purposely did that. Of course they did. Of course they did. Because what does William Friedkin like to do? Torture people. They go there. Uh, Marin, he, he takes his part of his robe and, and puts it on... I don't know what that's called, but they puts it on her face and all that green stuff just comes out the side of her mouth and gets all over the stuff. But it's he, a stole. He, but you can see Father Marin is not able to do this. As soon as Father Damien goes in and washes it down, he is struggling and the demon is laughing because he knows he's got him. He knows that he's not physically able to deal with him. And he knows that Father Damien is also not strong enough because of his lack of faith, and this is the first time he's here. goes back to what you were saying, Ted, earlier. Why would you allow somebody with lack of faith to be your second in command here? It doesn't make any sense. They go back and forth, take a break and stuff like that. She breaks her binds, levitates the lovely bed up. They're trying really hard to keep doing what they need to do. But the devil, like we said, is a liar, and you know she's got that tongue going out just every single which way that you can. But uh, I was listening to something that was saying that in those type of intense situations, either you're focused on the task at hand or you're focused on your environment. There's like no in-between. And you can see the difference between Father Marion and Father Damien. Damien is looking at the situation and he doesn't know how to handle this. Father Marion is like, I've done this before. This is a piece of cake for me. They say the power of Christ compels you, all that good stuff. Try to tie her back up and Damien gets hit over the head by Reagan. 
almost knocks him out. But Father Marion, he's he's struggling. He has to go take those pills again. Father Damien is, is struggling. He comes back in and to check on her, and all of a sudden he sees his mother. I think mentally in his head that's what he sees now. And then she just talks to him like in his mom, in her mom's voice. I love the fact that the demon has a sense of humor, and she's like, "By the way, Karis, uh, your mom's in here. If you like to leave her a message, I'll make sure she gets it." I think it's funny. I think it's purposely done to give a little bit of a laugh in a certain way, even though it's kind of horrific but at the same time it's funny just the way it's delivered and she goes back and forth opening desk and stuff like that earlier on so they're just having a little bit of fun at the beginning but here he can't handle it because he hears his mom's voice and he has that guilt and the guilt is back and father Miriam comes back and sees his struggles and orders him out yeah he's broke but he gets that second win he goes downstairs and chris is talking to him about, is my daughter going to die? And he has that rocky moment where it's like, no. And, you know, he gets that second win and he runs upstairs, but only to find out that Father Marin is dead. And that's where... Murdered. Murdered. Well, I don't know if he's murdered. I'm thinking his heart just gave out. I don't think the demon did Uh anything to him to kill him. I just don't think those pills helped in this particular case. He was just in no shape to do this. And she's just like laughing and having that little giggle. That is perfect. I love that. It's just so wrong and so right in so many ways. Damien, he decides to beat the crap out of poor Reagan. He just starts yeah, wailing right. on her and just starts punching her. And he tells the demon to get into him. The demon obliges. He's about ready to do something to Reagan, but then Father Damien gets control of the situation and throws himself out the window. And, of course, goes down the stairs, given last rites by his best friend, the other priest that's in this movie. For whatever reason, Detective is there. And he sees all the things that are going around here. I mean, just Ted just talked about it. Dismisses all this. <laughs> we have to remember this is 1973. The special effects that are being done here are really, really good. You don't see the wires the, of the levitation. They do some simple things right to make everything work well. I'm kind of surprised it's as quick as it is because Father uh, Marion dies pretty fast. But they're probably there not even a couple of hours and he's he gone. The last so. hours of life. After this is all said and done, Reagan goes back to normal. The only problem I would have had with the makeup people, but it's supposed to be, I think, only a day or two afterwards. And they're leaving and her face is not too bad. Not, not too, too bad. bad, yeah. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more recognition of what happened to her face and everything. But she sees Father Damien's friend, the priest he's there to say goodbye to them and she gives him a kiss on the cheek because even though she doesn't remember anything that really happened she still has this feeling like of appreciation of of what was done for her and then we see that stupid thing about the priest and the detective getting together and talking about going to see a movie and supposedly they were supposed to do this Casablanca type of thing where the beginning of a beautiful friendship but it was left out of the original cut for a reason, and I think it should have probably stayed that way. Definitely. The one thing here that that was brought back into the 2000 cut was, I think, one of the most poignant scenes of this whole section. Father Marin and Father Karras, they've had to stop because that's where we get to see Reagan posed as Pazuzu with the the backlight behind her, which is another iconic shot in a series of scenes full of iconic shots. And they're just sitting there, and they're trying to regather themselves. 
and they're both emotionally and physically tired. And Father Karras mentions to Father Marin, why this little girl? Father Marin sums up, I think, the whole, basically the whole movie in the most eloquent way possible. And he says it's to destroy our faith in a God who would allow this to happen to a child. I don't know why it was originally cut from the movie. I guess Friedkin had said that he didn't think it was, it needed to be there, but the re-putting it, of it into the movie adds so much to this movie. Warner Brothers screened the film with Friedkin and recommended that one of those parts to be taken out. This is the one thing that I, I agree putting back into the film. Everything else, even the spider walk, I'm yeah. not a big fan of the spider walk. Even though that's a real person going down, they still had a a wire on oh, yeah. her when she went down, but they found a, like a, a contortionist right. to kind of be able to walk down that staircase. To do the... But yeah, yeah it was determined by uh, an executive at Warner Brothers to cut some of these scenes. The writer and the director didn't talk for a while after this. They were very upset about this. And yeah. they finally rekindled their friendship and decided to do this re-release in 2000 to put back what was taken out. But some of the stuff they lost, I mean, they couldn't find the audio for, um, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. Like I said, there's so many scenes here. There's so many cuts and pictures that are so iconic. Probably, the, for me, the most terrifying thing, when she starts to levitate. It's I so lose realistic. Myself into it really the movie. is. Yeah, it just it takes my breath away. And, of course, the picture of Father Marin pulling up outside and standing under the street lamp. There are maybe five or six truly iconic images in movie history. And that's right there. This whole section is, is so crazy. I mean, and it begs the question, ultimately, at the end of the day, good doesn't win here. Pazuzu still essentially wins. He got the best of Marin, and he got Karis to kill himself. Reagan is fine, but everybody around her is broken. I'm going to disagree now. with you on this. I'm, I'm totally and on the opposite. And the director actually said it depends on how you look at it. Everybody's going to look at it two different ways. But I will say here, it's a win because guess who gets his faith back? Father Karras gets his faith back. And because of that faith back, that's a win. True. Because what the demon wanted to do was totally destroy that faith. And instead, Karras trusts in his faith to overcome this. And he basically gets rid of the demon to you know, not do this to anybody else. I think they win here. I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. No, I, I, I agree with I don't Ken. know. I guess I still have a nihilistic Good conquers evil in this one. Of... I think that's the whole whole point of the movie. I can definitely see that. Say, what happens to these but... characters if Reagan doesn't, let's say, get possessed? I think Father Karras leaves the faith. Maybe. Definitely. I think I he does. I, I don't definitely. know. Especially with his mother dying and the guilt. Yeah. This situation actually acts as a way to cope with the guilt that he has for his mother that died. And Father Marin, he's a shell of himself because of all the exorcisms that he's done, all the battles that he's done, he's tired. He's fighting death right now. Yeah. And so I think one person is already on the edge of death. The other one is has given up on life. I think he's given up on life, not only on faith, but on life because of everything that he sees around him. The death of his mother, people being hurt, bad things happen to good people, things of that nature. It's destroying him. And I think in the end, they win because... Father Marion does the battle. He doesn't hide. He goes out and does what he needs to do. And Father Karras, like I said earlier, the moment where he tells Chris that his daughter's not going to die, 
that right there is the winning moment right there. I'm not gonna argue I'm right. because <laughs> that's how you because I I think this might be one of the instances where Bill Friedkin might be right. There's different ways to look at this and how you how you approach. Well, it's like it. what we um, saw with uh, with that Linda Blair was possessed, and people were thinking all these right. things like they were promoting Satan and stuff. No, they weren't. Depending on how you look at, it, they were promoting good triumphs over evil. If you look at it that way, this film is great. I mean, the movie is still great, regardless of which way you look at it. But these freaks back in the 70s who think that Linda Blair needed her own exorcism after the film was over and needed to be converted or whatever, they had problems because it's it's just a movie and it's a movie about good triumphing over evil. Simple as that. Plus, we forgot about talking about the spinning of the head. That's the other iconic thing here that we get to yeah, see. Yeah, pretty ironic. You know what? I think... The movie might have been better without it. You know what? I was thinking about this, too, because for 73, it's not a bad-looking doll. But as the time has gone by, it's not not probably aged as well as it could have. It can't because 73 technology, you're just not going to be able to get it. I think it does okay. I like it better when she turns her head and, and she looks at her mom and goes into that voice of the director. Well, you know what your your daughter did? I hate to say it. That's probably my favorite part of the film was in, when she says that. People freaked the fuck out over this movie. They lost their collective shit. America went into full panic mode. They went back to whatever church that they wanted to run back to. People lost their ever-loving mind. This movie, to say it was a cultural phenomenon, is not doing that justice. Now we've come back with a lot of things. We wonder how much of it was hype from the studio. But of course, there's the tales of ambulances being set up outside the movie theater, people passing out. I think Eric had brought up that there was a miscarriage. The tales of people seeing this movie and people passing out all the time, it's it's pretty wild and very sensationalistic and definitely been programmed by the studio. The studio didn't think this movie was going to be anything. So that's why they really pushed the hype of the movie the way they did, and it really didn't need it because, like I said, people lost their minds. The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, and The Omen. We've covered two of these movies now, The Omen and The Exorcist. These movies were daytime talk show fodder for Donahue and you name it for the early part of the 80s about people being part of a satanic cult. It, it Just the most wild crap you've ever heard. And it all comes back to the exorcist and how people just lost all perspective. Of course, there was the book Michelle Remembers that helped bring part of this. And that's why all of this is known as the satanic panic. Just do a little research if you can on the satanic panic. (laughs) It, It is. It really is. But that was the era that I grew up in. Everybody was afraid that there were Satanists around, and there's a Satanist around every corner. Just craziness. In 1999, Pope John Paul II reinstituted a mass hiring of priest volunteers to become exorcists again. 
it's one of those crazy things how a movie so changed a culture. It's what makes this movie The Exorcist. When you've mentioned the Mount Rushmore of horror movies, nobody ever leaves The Exorcist off because the impact it had for two generations oh. on. When this movie first came out, it was only released on, I think, 24 screens. It just expanded greatly into other theaters. This was one of those movies that helped support wide releases of movies. At that time, movies would be released here, they would be released there. They would build up momentum. Now we are used to seeing a movie released over the weekend, number one. It's the number one movie of the week. Back then, it took some time for word of mouth to get around for those movies to do that, this movie kind of forced a hand to start releasing these movies as bigger releases. And how about a December 26th release date? That's just great marketing. Yeah. Great marketing. <laughs> That's crazy, man. I, this Christmas, coming um, to the theater near you. Is it a coincidence, or is that the lack of faith that Warner Brothers had in the movie, that they buried it That's, the day after but Christmas? But a lot of people go to the movies. I don't know. A lot of people do. That's true. But horror That's good movies. Very, they're like no one's going to watch it. It's one of those completely amazing things. I mean, you had Billy Graham saying that the devil was actually in the celluloid film of the movie. Movies don't have that sort of same impact today. Is there a curse of The Exorcist? There are a lot of claims. I mean, we had the actor who played Burt Dennings died. There was a fire on the set. The entire set and everything burned, except for the room that was Reagan's room. Maybe it was because it was below freezing in the room, and that's why the fire didn't burn it down. Everything in the whole place burned down except for that. Destroyed a lot of film that they had already produced. Looking back at it, was it a cursed film? I don't know. Of course, there's the t- there's tales. How much do you believe William Friedkin? Because William Friedkin had a, had a priest come in and do an exorcism. Right. Of yeah, didn't the they set. bless the set every day? No, I think it was just this one time. What we forgot about, about him shooting the he gun behind. He shot a gun just to get a reaction out of the out of his actors. He hit an actor. Just to, to, uh, the priest at the end, who's uh, giving last rites. Yeah, he, Father he, Tom. Yeah, he was a real priest. He was a real priest, and he was like a technical advisor on the set too. And yeah, so his hands yeah. would shake. Bill freaking he's either a genius or he's just a crazy man Probably that's just both. complete lost control. So. I don't see him doing this to Gene Hackman on the set of The French Connection. No. I'm just I, saying. Well, that's the thing is you, you, the actors here are, are nobody's of the time yet. They're not established actors and actresses yet. Yeah, you're right. If, if this was some other people that they considered, it wouldn't fly. I guarantee you Paul Newman would have hauled off and knocked Freakins on his butt if he fired yeah. a gun behind his head yeah. to get an, guess a, a what reaction Marlon shot. Brando would have done. He'd probably beat the crap out of him. Oh, gee. So, That's yeah. what I was thinking. <laughs> that particular time, probably so. Or he would have poured honey on him or some weird crap. Poor Marlon Brando. Let's see what we all think of this movie here. Uh, Ted, why don't you go first? Tell us what your thoughts are. This is a top 50 movie for me. This this hits all of the all of the right elements. I watch it every year in October. And there are times where I'll just pick it up randomly. There's a reason that it's called the best horror movie of all time by so many different people. 
This movie's an A for me. It's not an A plus because an A plus is going to be one of my top twenty five movies. But this is definitely an A. This hits all of the right notes for me. It's rewatchable. It's scary when it's supposed to be, and it makes me think, and it makes me want to go find out other things. Ultimately, that's what I look for in a movie, and I thoroughly enjoy this movie. All right, for me, it's definitely, like you, a top 50 movie, if not even better. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I am I love watching it. I love the original and the director's cut. Blu-ray copy, you can definitely see the, the transfer is, is far superior to the DVD. I only wish it was available on 4K, but it's not. Maybe someday. Hopefully soon. There's very, very few bad things I can say about this movie. It's just an incredible movie. Like Ted, for me, it's a solid A. If I were to grade this like years back, I think I would give it a better grade than I'm giving it now. It's a scary movie. It's I love the characters in it. I do think the movie does drag at times. I do think there are things in it maybe not needed. We talked about the detective. Even though I think those scenes are, are good scenes, they are just kind of wasted on this film. They would be perfectly fine in some type of other thriller, but here they just don't make any sense. The added scenes that were added to the special edition, the director's cut, whatever you want to call it, the only scene for me that adds anything to it really is the scene where the fathers are talking about why Reagan. And I think that's a a very good scene. But the rest of it, seems to really not make a difference to me whatsoever on that. Linda Blair's performance is great. The score is sets everything up extremely well. But I the through the years it has suffered from other movies mimicking it. Ted had mentioned earlier the doll, he said he would now take that that part out. So there there are some things that are kind of dated in this movie. There's talk about a, either a remake or a continuation of the story with the, the original actress who played the mom. For me, this movie's a B. A few years ago, probably a B plus, but I, I just think throughout the years, it's just gone, it's dated itself a little bit, and I'm going to just settle with the B for this movie. They've tried to resurrect mm-hmm. this movie. TV show that only lasted two seasons, it was yep. absolutely god-awful. They've done two post movies and then i saw both versions of the exorcist the beginning one was okay the other one was just that's the curse right there bad <laughs> um if you want to do it maybe follow the true story because the true story is just as scary this doesn't need to be resurrected again. i guess you could it's, do father Karras I don't, like as an older 60 or 70 year old priest of course he'd probably be in his 80s by now the Father well, Karras is dead. Yes, I Father know. Father Karras is well, dead. Good check point. out. Good point. Maybe he comes back. Check out the Exorcist 3, because he comes mm-hmm. back. He comes back. Right. He comes back in The what? Exorcist 3. See, I've never yeah. seen The Exorcist 3. Yeah. It's, Father uh, Karras uh, does? The, it's the Wrath mm-hmm. of Karras. So he's not dead. So Wrath of Karras, yeah. No, it's, it's, oh, it's hard to explain Christ. without actually going through I, the movie, but basically, skip The Exorcist 2, go to 3. It's It's not great. But it's passable as its own movie. If you don't, want I, it, I would agree. Don't compare it to it's... Exorcist One because it's not a scary movie whatsoever. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Next podcast we're going to be doing here is the Exorcism of Emily Rose, and then after that, we're going to be following up with the Haunted Palace, starring Mr. Vincent Price. 
So that's a pretty cool movie to end out on. The guy, the guy, from, thriller. The guy from Thriller. Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. We appreciate you listening.